All right. So I'm excited for these guys. I'm excited um, for, for what the Lord is going to do over these next months. Um, once again, I really strongly encourage everybody, um, have them in your homes. Have them over for dinner. Uh, get to know them. Ask some questions. Um, do your own examination. And we're going to read that. We're going to read those qualifications here in a minute. If there's anything there, you think, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if all of these guys meet all these. I'd like to know more. Uh, now is the time to do that. Ask them, um, please. Just, I just don't want you to be like, ah, somebody else is going to do it. I'll just let someone else figure that out. I'll let someone else ask those questions. Every one of you, it's, it's the church's responsibility as a collective whole to do this. So I just really, really, really encourage you, go home, look at your calendars over the next six weeks and find a time to invite them over or take them out to lunch after church on a Sunday, something. But get to know them, ask them these questions. Um, be, be sure as you can be, and that's, that's my encouragement to you. So, <clears throat> so I'm sure the question in some of your minds is, um, why are we doing this? Why are we doing it this way? Isn't it sort of the Baptist tradition to like model the corporate world? We have a pastor who's kind of in charge and then all the other you know, ministries are kind of under his authority and we just have one guy and everybody is kind of answering to him. Um, and we're not, ch- the, the change is not happening for the sake of like, oh, we, you know, we would just want to tear down all the traditions. Um, I, I mean, I've been in the Baptist church my whole life since I was a kid. I love traditions. My, I mean, I, so like the drumming that I do, like that didn't start on a drum set. I learned that much later, but like I, I actually learned to do that being in percussion in high school. Um, and one of the things that, that we did as a drum line, was like we just had, we had, I can't even remember them all, but 20 years later, like I could name off four or five of the, of the traditions that the drum line did that I just loved. Like, um, you know, I mean, our football team was, was just awful. I don't think I ever saw them win a game in all four years of high school, but we still had pep rallies, right? It was a home game. We're having a pep rally, right? And one of the traditions was that the drum line, instead of like having a bell or an announcement to release all the students to go to the gym, we as the drum line would get in the hall and we would play and we would march down the hall and then the football team was behind us and then the school would file out of the classrooms and so we were the announcement. And it was a cool thing. It was a tradition and at the end of the pep rally we would play. Um, we would, my parents loved this one. Um, when we had contests, we would get there at five in the morning that day so that we would like change our heads, you know, get everything tuned up and make sure everything was working. And so I, in that aspect of my life, in my own personal family, like we had lots of traditions. We went to the same place for vacation like all the time, every year. You know, we always had people over to our house on Christmas Eve and got to open presents. And so um, tradition is a part of who I am and I love it. And I don't ever want to just like get rid of things just for the sake of getting rid of them. And that's not what's happening here. Like we're not getting rid of the way the church used to be structured just for the sake of tearing something down and rebuilding something new. But rather... We're getting rid of this tradition because the Bible is very clear about how the church should operate, about what the governance should look like. Um, And so that's what we are going to look like. I mean, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, Now, I know that this is not like a new thing. If you're new here, sort of, it may be new for you. But this church has been on this journey for quite a while, right? Seven-ish, eight years. I don't know how long. Um, I remember though, I, I knew, I know James Vaughn really well. When we planted our church here in town, he helped me with that. And I remember him telling me before we ever planted the church here, like that he was in the process of preaching sermons here about elders, about trying to, to bring the church along in that. And so that was at least 2015. I don't know. Maybe it was before that when you guys started doing it. So the first thing I want to say is for, for those of you who have been here a while, I know that this is not necessarily a new idea, but 
there have been some bumps along the road, right? Things have not gone the way that, that, it, that everyone had hoped it would. And I, the first thing I want to say is I, am, I applaud you because the easy thing to do would have said, well, we tried it and it didn't work. Let's go back to what we know. Let's go back to the thing that we've always done because that seemed to be working okay. So we did this other thing, no good, let's go and do, let's go back. Um, no matter how hard the road is forward, we have to walk the road that God has laid out for us. Even if we try it and we think, man, that didn't work. Like the problem is not God's plan, it's our execution of God's plan. When we do something that God has commanded us and we fall flat on our face and it doesn't work or there's all these problems or there's bumps... We just need to find a better way to execute it. And so um, I just want to say that from the outside looking in for many years, I've been watching the church and just like, I'm just really impressed that this church didn't just say, well, tried it once, we're done. Let's go back to what we know. Um, You guys are soldiering on and continuing to push forward and and trying to be on the path that God has led you. And I think that we're going to see this morning that it is really, really obvious that the, what is happening here, the plurality of elders, is what God wants us to do. It's what God wants from all of his churches. And so um, that's where we're going to start. So the first thing that we're going to see this morning is that it is a plurality of elders. This is what God commands of his church, the leadership of his church. It is a plurality of elders and not just one pastor. Now, I have this sort of pet peeve about, like, listing off 20 scriptures to prove a point, right? Have you ever thought, you, you see, you hear that and you're like, oh man, one should be enough, right? If we read in the Bible and it's really clear and God says in this one passage, this is the way we should do things, that should be enough. But I know that this is maybe a struggle for some of you. And so I want to show you how overwhelming it is in the New Testament that the New Testament speaks about multiple elders in one church, And there's lots and lots and lots of places. But the first example, I think the most important example, is that we would look at what Jesus does. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus doesn't just find Peter and say, okay, you're with me, man. Just you and me. I'm going to train you at how how to build the church by yourself. That's all I need is one guy. He can be in charge. What does he do? He gathers 12 apostles, right? He gathers 12 men who all have different strengths, who all have different weaknesses, who work well together. And not even that, but they're even given certain tasks that are really specific to them based off of that. So when we see Jesus gathering the apostles together, we know right there, right from the beginning, that Jesus is gathering men, right? He wants a group of men to be the leader of his church. Now, once again, they have gifts, right? We don't see most of the apostles giving big sermons. If you look at the book of Acts, like who is doing that? Peter is standing up and preaching before thousands and thousands of people. This was one of his gifts, and that's okay, right? They allow him to do the thing that he, that he wants to do um, or, or that he's gifted in doing. It's not a great example, but it's still there. The principle still stands in that. Judas was given a very specific task, right, to be in control of the money. Now, he was a thief, right, and so we can look at it and say, well, he didn't do it right, so then it failed, so then we shouldn't do that. I think the principle is still there even amongst the sin of the man. 
Andrew, if you look at Andrew's life, he's very gifted and being able to connect people with other people. And usually Andrew, every time he meets somebody and they ask him a question, he just says, where's Jesus? Let me just take you. Let me take you to where Jesus is. And that's what he does. There's this really fascinating book. John MacArthur wrote it many years ago called 12 Ordinary Men. And this is what he does. He just looks at the disciples. He gives their strengths and their weaknesses. And he shows very clearly that these 12 men are not carbon copies of one another. They're a bunch of different guys with different abilities, different strengths, different weaknesses coming together. And Jesus did it on purpose. He gathered a group of men to lead his church for when he ascends, right? Not just one guy. There's not a leader amongst them. I mean, what happens when James and John are trying to vie for the most important part, the most, the most prominent role amongst the apostles? Does Jesus like, well... Duke it out, arm wrestle. We're going to figure out who is the leader. There's 12 of you, but there's one that stands above the rest. Which one of you is it? That's not the response that Jesus makes. He looks at them and he says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Serve people, right? That, That he is calling these men whom he is training up to be servants. There is no leader amongst the 12. They are working together. No one man can fully embody all aspects of ministry alone. I, just think about this on a practical level. Have you ever met one person who is highly successful at studying evangelism, counseling, administration, finances, community engagement, and all the other things that we put into the, the job description of a pastor? No. I've worked with a lot of pastors over the last 20 years now that I've been doing ministry. They're always good at some of them, and they're always really bad at some of the other ones, right? And we say, well, we'll just hire them a secretary, or we'll get this, or we'll do that, and we'll just find a way to, to, to bring about or, or to strengthen the weaknesses of the one guy. Instead of saying, hey, what does the Bible say? There's lots of elders. Let's bring about lots of men together, and let's let them, their strengths and weaknesses, work together. So I know that coming soon, I don't know when, but coming soon, it will start, that you guys will start looking for the next you know, full-time preaching elder, right? Don't expect him to be able to do all of those things. It's not only unfair, but I think it's unbiblical to ask him to be able to, to do all of that stuff. Um, so Jesus shows us as our first example, we need a group of men. The next thing is, all right, so open up to Acts chapter 14. We're going to get to the first Peter passage in a little bit, but we're going we're gonna to kind of go through a decent number of scriptures here. And several things I want you to notice as we read these. A lot of them are in Acts. Um, we're we're going to flip through a lot of different places in the New Testament. There is no distinction amongst the elders. When, he, when, we, when we read about these elders, there is no leader amongst them. It's a group of men who all have equal authority. The second thing to notice is that the elders are always plural and the church is always singular. And I say that because you might think, well, what about, you know, our Presbyterian brothers, they have elders. But what they have is elders over a group of churches, right? Ten churches, there's elders or presbyters over top of them. They're, they're overseeing the churches, but there's still only one pastor within the church. I think that's misguided. I think what we see here is that we have multiple elders, multiple spiritual leaders, but only one church in all of these examples. So Acts 14. <coughs> Verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts 15, 
1 to 6. So just flip a page over. 1 to 6. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the coming custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas and no small, had no small dissension um, and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion... Uh, yeah, the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Um, but, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. The elders that are spoken of over and over and over again are the elders of the church of Jerusalem. Right? So the apostles, that's kind of their home base. So they're there, but then there is a, a church there. right? And from many traditions, it's James who is the teaching elder, the one who is preaching, um, J- Jesus' brother, right, in the church in Jerusalem. And so there are elders there. Paul and Barnabas are having this conflict. And so they're going to the church to meet with the apostles and to meet with the elders of just one church that we find there. Flip over to Acts chapter 20. I like to hear the pages turning. I was the fool who forgot my Bible this morning. I'm having to use my phone. Skip through all of this. Chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Look at James 5. This is the one about healing, which we're probably fairly familiar with. James 5, and this is 13 to 15. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double, double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now this one is extremely important because if there was going to be a place where Paul said, look, there's a body of elders, but the elder who teaches and preaches, well, who we call the pastor, who we call the preacher, he's the one in charge. If there was ever a place he was going to do it, it would be here. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't name one of the elders to be authority over that elder body. He just continues to call the elders as one body. He just continues to treat them all as equal with authority. And I could go on and on and on and on, so I will. Um, Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who, who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Overseers and elders are basically interchangeable terms here, right? So there's two offices. We're not going to get to that yet, but I, deacons are coming, right? We're, we're trying to get the elders in place, but I promise you, we didn't just be like, well, we're just going to make the elders do all the stuff. 
One day, right, soon, the deacons are coming. That, that process is going to look very similar. I don't know when that's going to start, but the leadership team is working on that, right? We haven't forgot about deacons, and so the, this is happening. But once again, it's one church with a plurality of elders. Look at Titus 1, chapter 5. This is like Bible drill for all of you. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 1 Peter 1, and this is going to bring us then into our passage for the morning. 1 Peter 1, 1, let's start and see who the audience is. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So it's important to know who he's talking to, right? That's his thing. He's, he's talking to these five churches. Now flip over to chapter 5, where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5. That's his audience. 5.1, as we read already this morning. I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow, fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. He is exhorting the elders in these five churches. There are, there are actually more, but we're not, we'll, we'll be done, right? Um, there, are, there are so many places in the New Testament that speak about the governance of the church. And every time that I know of, I may be wrong, you can correct me, but every time that I know of, it is a multitude of elders in one congregation. These men are to work together, to work in unison with one another so that they can lead the church as a team. Now, our, if you have any resistance to this, I don't know. But any resistance that comes to this, I think, is purely cultural and not biblical. I mean, think about what does Israel do? So they, they come out of the exile, they come out of the judges period, and what do they demand from the Lord? A king. And why do they do it? Do they have any good reason? Everybody else is doing it. Everybody else has a king. I guess that's, we, sh- we need a king. If that, that's what everybody else is doing, that must be what we need to do. And the Lord said, no, I am your king. You don't need a king. I'm in charge. I'm, I am your king. And they say, well, we still want one. You see, this is not a good reason. The culture should not determine what we do. It should not determine the decisions that are made within the church. We don't want to model the business world simply because that's what we know and that's what we're comfortable with. I think, I don't know where or when or how it happened that the Baptist church in in its tradition has come up with this sort of corporate model, right? That we have one guy in charge and everybody sort of answers to him. Um, I think it's because that's what, again, that's what we know. That's what we're comfortable with. That's how it looks at work. I'm like, well, okay. But guys, this this is not a job. This is not work. This is not a business. What we are doing here is reading God's word, is praising him in our song, and we need to be led by elders the way in which God has commanded it. We're not trying to set up a business. We're not trying to be efficient. We're not trying to be... We are trying to lead the the number of people who are in this room and the members of this church in a spiritual way. And that's what these four guys are being tasked with. That's what you as a church need to make sure that you think that they're capable of doing. 
Now the question arises, well, what if these guys can't come to a decision? Don't we need somebody who will have the final say? Don't we need somebody who can break the tie, if you will, so that we can move forward and get things decided? And the answer is emphatically no. We don't need a veto vote. If those four guys come together, they read the Bible, and they can't come to a a consensus on the right way to move forward based off of Scripture, we don't say, well, for the sake of efficiency and for the sake of moving forward with this thing, we just got to figure out a way to, to, to do it. No, you just don't do it, right? You don't move forward. You just say, Lord, continue to show us, continue to teach us, continue to reveal to us. It's not about efficiency. It's not about how quickly can we make a decision. It's about the spiritual lives of this entire church. There can't be one guy in charge because any one of those four men has sin that they don't see, that they're blinded to. They need the others to help them see that. They need the others. They need to be able to point out the sin in their fellow brothers' lives so that four together can be looking and checking one another all of the time to make sure that they move forward as a group the way the Bible commands and prescribes us to move forward. So please, I implore you, I beg you, don't think of that body of, like this is just a, a board of directors who are just making decisions and they're just, we're trying to move the church forward. We're trying to make sure the ministries are, are operating at full efficiency. That is not what it is about. These guys are here to oversee, to look after you, to love you, to walk with you through the darkest times of your life, to counsel you, to, to oversee the teaching of this church, to make sure that things that are being taught are biblical. This is their job. It might be slow, but this is what they have been tasked to do. So if you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, that's not how the Baptists do things, I would ask you, do, are, are, any resistance that you have is because you know the Bible teaches something different or it's because this is the way we have always done it. If it's because the way we've always done it, be ready to discard that, right? That, that, and that's why I started, right? I am not here to, to try and convince you to just tear down tradition for the sake of tearing it down. I love traditions. There's so many parts of my life that I value that I have wonderful memories about the traditions of my life. But if the traditions contradict God's word, we have to throw them out. So what should we expect from these guys? 1 Peter 5, 1-3. So he says again, I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Excuse me, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those you are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, this is not all-encompassing, right? There's lots of different places. We are going to read, once again, I've said it multiple times, we're going to read from Timothy and Titus to see those. Um, But ultimately, we have some major, big ideas, and this is a really good encompassing of what the elders are going to be doing. The first thing, and it's multifaceted, right, is that they are going to shepherd the flock. So one of those aspects is that they're going to lead the church from one pastor to another. Pasture, right? Not pastor, but pasture, right? Where do you go to get your sustenance? No good shepherd would lead his sheep to a field that's been eaten down to the dirt and there's nothing there. 
So this means that the, the elders are responsible for leading the church spiritually. What direction is the church going to go in a spiritual way? These four men are going to be responsible for that. That also means that not every year, all the ministries from the year before are going to hold over, right? There may come a time when we say, yeah, we've been doing this, but it, it's run its course. And we're, now we're going to be looking at new pastors. Now we're going to be looking at new ministries and new ways of doing things. I know this is not something we like to hear because what we want, we want like the five ministries, we want to get them established, find the leaders, and then do them till we die, right? We don't ever want to think about adding new ones or if, well, this one has, once it's run its course, it was good. We did it for a couple of years. It was really fruitful, and now it's no longer fruitful, so let's, let's put that one aside. Let's put our resources elsewhere. We think of it as a failure. So I don't know, but like, don't think of it that way. You do a ministry for a couple of years, right? I, I don't want to name any because I'm not trying to like pick on anything, right? I'm not saying that any of the ministries that I've seen happen here only are going to be here for two years. But there could be some that are just like, we're going to do this for a little while. We're going to meet the need that we see. And then when that need is met, like five years from now, we may not need to do that. I might pick on the sacred cow here for a minute. What if in five years there's a better system and there's a better way of doing things than Awana? Are you guys? <laughs> it does. I don't know of any. I don't know of a better system than a water, right? I don't. But what if, what if somebody comes up with one that is, I don't know. We, the church looks at it. The elders look at it and say, wow, like this has a lot of benefits that we don't see in Awana, right? And so we're going we're gonna to make a change. This is, this is their job. They're going to lead the church spiritually. They're going to pastor, right? They're going to, they're going to move the church from one pastor to the next. Where is the grass the greenest? Where are we going to get the most nutrition? Where is the church going to be fed the deepest and the most full? That's part of their job. Another part of being a, um, of being a shepherd is that they fight off the wolves, right? Protecting the flock. This is expressed in Titus. Um, we'll see that in a minute when we read it. But this is expressed where he says, elders need to be ready to rebuke those who contradict sound teaching. And then he even goes a little further and he says, you know, there's, there is some of the, I mean, the same thing that we read um, earlier, that, that, that some of the circumcision crowd has come in and trying to convince the church that they need to be circumcised and they need to follow the law of Moses, that they're going to be saved. And Paul even tells Titus, look, you need to sharply rebuke those people who are coming into the church, false doctrine, upsetting entire families. That staff that they have is not just for pulling the sheep back when they're about to walk over a cliff, but it's also for fighting off the wolves and the bears and the things that would come in to this congregation and try and poison the good and fruitful word of God. And if you think, ah, that would never happen, just look at the churches around us. You don't even have to go that far. When we were planting a church here, we went to every church in Bayfield, most every church. Less than five miles from here, there is a church that is preaching prosperity gospel. We sat in their pews and listened to them do it. Where does that come from? How does that enter in to, to God's church that is supposed to be preaching God's word, if not for the leadership not being there to protect, not being there to look out for God's word? Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Lutherans, even the Baptists, right? 
We're starting to see them splinter and shape because of all of the things that are going on. The sexual revolution, things that are trying to come in. These, these issues of race that are unbiblical, that are trying to work their way into the church. These four men that we all prayed for this morning, they are the first line of defense against that stuff. It is their job to stand up and when they hear false doctrine, to not just be like, well, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe we'll just let this one slide. No, to stand up and protect the church from those things. Whatever the wolf looks like, it comes in many forms, right? They are here to shepherd. They willingly exercise oversight. One of the first questions I asked each of these guys was, do you even want to do this? You see, there's more than four men in this church, I strongly believe there's more than four, who, who meet the qualifications of Timothy and Titus, who could be elders and who meet all of that except for that first one. They don't feel the Lord's calling on their life to do it. Sure, they're not greedy and they're, you know, they're, they're a man of one wife and their family and their household in his order and all of those things are there and present in their life. But that first one, that they aspire to do it, they don't, it's not for me. I don't know why, but the Lord has not called me to it. But these four guys emphatically said, yes, I know that God is calling me to do this. And they want to do it. Their desire is to do it, not so that they can lord their authority over the church, but so that they can lovingly and humbly serve everyone here. All four of these guys expressed this to me multiple times throughout the interview process. None of them want to do it so that they can, all right, now I've got the pin, I've got control, I'm going to change all the things the way that I want them to be. Never did that come up in any of four of them. All of them were like, I want to do it. God is calling me to do it so I can serve the church, so that I can love them. And this is what we need, right? To willingly exercise oversight, but not to domineer it over them, right? That's what First Peter tells us. That, that they would not be domineering, but that they would be humble servants. So the last question this morning is this. What is your responsibility as the church? So now you, as the church, once again, you are set with the task of examining these men. I spent a whole lot of time with them. I asked them lots and lots and lots of questions for everything I could think of. But here's the thing, right? I'm, to some degree, an outsider kind of stepping into this position and, and trying to help and trying to do my best. But for many of you, you have served alongside these men for years and years. You know them far better than I do. You'll think of questions that never crossed my mind, right? I did everything that I could, and I asked every question I could think of. But for those of you who have been sitting next to these men, serving in this church or serving in other churches together for many years, it's your job to go to examine them, to ask them questions. <clears throat> and here's what you're looking for. These are the qualifications that we see. Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Oh, before I get in trouble... Um, somebody, somebody prayed for their wives. Uh, their, their wives were subjected to a little bit of questioning too. So all, all of these women, they, they had to come and, and sort of sit through a little bit of a grill. Um, but it was important, right? A lot of these things I was able to ask their wives, hey, how does your husband manage the household? Um, and so they were all very kind and gracious. So ladies, thank you for being a part of that. Um, I think it was really important. Um, so First Timothy 3. Starting in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Once again, this is what you're looking for in these men, right? Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Last flip, look at Titus 1, starting in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This is what you're looking for, and I know that that is a daunting task. I, throughout this whole process, I prayed and was just so thankful that the Lord was so exhaustive in his list, that I wasn't trying to come up with things, qualifications, but that the Lord is very, very specific. I mean, think about the Bible. How many other things do you know of that God is that specific when he is, when he's asking or, or making commands or demands of people? The only one that came to mind without really doing any kind of a, of a search was like the temple. He was really specific about how they build that and the tabernacle and all those things. But generally speaking, the Lord gives us some very, when, when he's talking about our sanctification and, and a lot of the things, we have very general rules about the things that we should do. But when it comes to the elders and the overseers, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's important that these men meet the standards of these qualifications. And so once again, it's your job. And the, and the last thing I will say about this is that my encouragement to you is to be patient. Um, you think about, look around and see, and not everybody's even here today, but think about the number of families who were just here this morning. If they're going to try and invite all four of these guys over for a meal or to have time to talk to them, like how long is that going to take for everybody to be able to do the examination that they need to do? It's going to take some time, right? So... It's not going to be like October and we're going to be ready to, to do this. Um, it's going to be a while, several months. It might not even be this year. I don't know. But the, pro the point is, if, if we're going to give you this challenge, spend significant amount of time with these four men to get to know them, we don't want to rush it, right? We don't want to, we don't want to jump into it. So please, I ask you to be patient because in the end, it's going to be worth it. And here's the thing. This is the last thing I want to say. And this is just from me. This is not from the leadership team. And so I have no authority to like, I'm just telling you, this is my heart about this. And it's really, really important. If, if the day comes when, when we gather together in a members meeting and we're going to, and we're ready to, you know, um, to vote on these men or whatever we're going to do or affirm them by a show of hand or whatever that looks like, um, there will be a time to say, is there anybody who does not want to affirm them? 
If you raise your hand in that moment and that's the first time that you have ever made it known that you have a problem with that man, you failed. Now is the time to do that. Now is the time to go to these men and ask them questions. We're following the biblical mandate here, right? Jesus tells us, look, you have a problem with somebody. If there's something that you don't understand, you go to them one-on-one. And then if it doesn't resolve, you go to them with a few. And if it doesn't resolve there, then you go before the church. If you come to that meeting and you haven't done the one-on-one, and if you haven't done the two or three people and going to speak to that person, you should not raise your hand in that moment. That's, that's me. I think, this, I think this is what the Bible is saying. It's not like a rule. If you come and you do that, I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm telling you right now, the Bible tells you, don't do that. Take the time now. Get to know them. Bring anything up that you have. And the last thing I will ask you is that probably this has crossed your mind this morning or in the last couple of months, and that is how can we really know if these are the right guys? What if we get it wrong? What if something happens? What if this all falls apart? Look back with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. God forbid that all four of these men have moral failure and they all are disqualified and the church would have fold and go under and First Baptist Church no longer exists in Bayfield. But even if all of that, the worst case scenario, were to come about, the chief shepherd is sitting on his throne. We don't put our hope in this church and we don't put our hope in these men. We put our hope in Jesus. These men are being called to help us along the way. But at the end of the day, if all of this falls apart, Jesus is still the chief shepherd. Jesus will still descend and give you a, give you a crown that lasts forever, no matter what happens here. We all recognize this church is, can't last forever. Something is going to happen, whether it be the rapture, whether it be the end of the world, whether, I don't know. I don't know what the, what's going to happen at the end of this age. But we can't put our hope here. The chief shepherd is coming. So if you have anxiety about this, you think, oh, what, what if we don't do it right? What if The Lord is still sitting on his throne no matter what happens inside these four walls. We should still pray. We should still seek out and we should still encourage these guys and pray for them on a regular basis. But at the end of the day, Jesus will never be overthrown, right? He will be there forever. He is our king and he is our savior. He is there to save anybody who confesses their sins and repents and believes in him. And ultimately for me, that's the most important part about this whole thing. Jesus is the shepherd, the the true shepherd of this church. He is going to be shepherding these men who are going to be helping to shepherd us. That's what the authority structure looks like. And so no matter what happens, God is on his throne. Jesus is the king and we are in good hands with him. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We are so grateful that you have made it abundantly clear to us from your word how we should organize the church, your church. It's not our church. Lord, for some reason you have entrusted us foolish and sinful people with your bride and with your church and the the beacon of light to a community God, we aren't capable of doing these things by ourselves. These four men are not capable of being elders on their own. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to lead us 
and to guide us. Lord, we ask for a double portion of that for these four men. Lord, you see what is going on, and you see that these men have a deep desire to serve your church. (coughs) Lord, I pray that you would honor that, that you would show them when they make mistakes, that you would help them along the way, that you would help them to see when when they err, and that these four guys would be totally open and totally honest with one another, that they would be able to speak freely, challenge each other when it needs to be, pray for each other all of the time. Lord, that these men would come into it and that they would be able to lead in a way that is worthy and honoring to you. And Lord, once again, even if all of that falls apart, that we know that you are here, that you are the great shepherd, that you love us and that you will never let us go. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.